Luca was born on October 16th and three hours after his birth, I got a phone call from Jonas Carney, uh, offering me a position on rally cycling. Um, and I had, I had spoken with Jonas about a month earlier and the team was full and they kind of made it made space on a team for me, um, so that I could continue to live my dream. Um, as a part of that organization. And I've stayed close with, you know, management on that team over the years. Um, it's such a cool team and one that I've always thought would be awesome to ride for. Nice. Um, it's like the most American team in the Peloton um, with Rally Health as their title sponsor. I think there, there are just so many ways that it aligns with, you know, just the lifestyle and health uh, dynamic of being a professional athlete. Um, it's a very logical title sponsor. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was an easy answer and I couldn't believe how quickly in my motivation came back, you know, after such a, a stressful, difficult season, um, long solo rides, um, very intense congested block of racing where things never really clicked. Like I was extremely run down. I needed a break. Um, but once I agreed to ride for rally, I like my motivation had, had never really been higher. So I'm really excited about it. I can't wait for our first team camp. Um, and especially for the first races. That is freaking awesome. Yeah. Uh, I mean, rally has had their name in cycling for so many years and they've, they've played the long game so well, you know, you hear company XYZ wants to get into cycling and two years later they're gone. Whereas these guys have been around. Boom. That's just it. I mean, my first team was Kelly Benefits. Yeah, I know. I was going to say, talk about cool for a full circle is reconnecting with Jonas, who what? He was probably like a team captain while you were racing there, right? Well, he wasn't racing. He was, uh, he was the... Uh, oh, I was yeah. giving you too many years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it was still Jonas directing the team. Um, Jonas, who gave me the phone call, uh, you know, when I was in my dorm room at Virginia Tech... After junior nationals offering me a spot on Cali benefits, um, you know, same, same core leadership group. And it's exactly like you say, I mean, how many times do we hear of new teams in cycling who want to do the tour de France and, you know, are over ambitious and do not have the infrastructure or organization to jump to that level. And, you have a team in 2008, a continental team, who says one day we want to race in Tour de France. And slowly and steadily and methodically, they work to that point. And, you know, I would say that they're on the cusp of being ready. And I would love to play a role, a small role, in, um, you know, helping get us to that point. Because having a truly North American team in the Tour de France would is something that I think the sport needs. Um, yeah. Along with more races in America. Well, yeah. Another, that's another podcast. That's another podcast. And that's another season <laughs> of podcasting, the state of affairs in domestic road racing. Now that there is an intro, my friends. That's a summary of the past year from uh, the perspective of our guest, Ben King. 
Ben King, brother from another mother and brother from another father as well, since uh, Ben and I don't actually share any familial relations. We just share the last name. Ben is a very good friend. Ben is a great human being. He's a phenomenal cyclist, as attested by a pair of stage wins in a single Grand Tour. Uh, not to mention his U.S. national title, which he won, I believe, as a 21-year-old. Uh, that was a star-studded field way back in 2010. It was a heroic all-day breakaway in which it saw him take the stars and stripes. I think he even drank a beer hand up on the last lap, as the story goes, because he thought it was a lost cause at that point, but he ended up U.S. national champion. Ben and I were teammates in 2015 on the Canada Garmin program, much to the confusion of cycling journalists who, by the end of the year, still didn't know that we were not related. They called me Ben. They called him Ted. I get it. Three letters, middle letter E. We're not the same people. We lived in the same town of Lucca, Italy for a couple years uh, during, during my professional days, during his professional days, and that is where he continues to call his European home and is where Ben and I caught up in this conversation. Unlike a podcast where we talk exclusively or much about bike and bike racing, this podcast is one in which Ben and I are going to catch up as friends. We catch up both as new parents. Our King family has about a seven-month head start on Ben's King family. Their son Luca is now four months old. If you want to hear about the glitzy, glamorous world of professional cycling, it's overabundance of nannies and and, and private jets and first-class travel and living in an Italian villa, then please check out a different podcast This episode is going to dive into the wild uncertainty of living in a COVID year. Being a professional cyclist is fickle in the very best of times. So then throw a newborn and a global pandemic into the equation. You've got yourself some pretty gnarly stories. And these stories are the real world for Ben, his wife Jenna, and their little baby Luca. I really appreciate the candor in the conversation because, uh, well, it wasn't until we were about a half hour into catching up that I told Ben that we were recording. But that's modern-day life, right? Somebody's always recording. Anyway, my friends, I would like to thank Kushcore for being a sponsor of this podcast. Tire inserts, folks. I'm guessing that you've started to hear much more about them recently. Tire inserts are something we really didn't know about a decade ago, but they are making big waves in cycling, with Kushcore absolutely leading the way in the world of tire inserts. I was lucky enough to get my hands on some last fall, and honestly, I find it hard to think about a world without them. Coming from the world of traditional road racing, I'm a huge proponent of running lower and lower air pressures, especially as we're running wider and wider tires. For what it's worth, my go-to slick on my gravel bike is 44C, and my most narrow tire that I run on my pure road bike is 32C. So it's with the confidence of Kushcore that I'm able to have better grip on the trail, much more of a supple feel on the trail, a more consistent feel all throughout an arcing corner or short snappy corners, I'm riding faster and faster since there are no speed losses with these lower pressures. It's counterintuitive, but trust me. Kushcore inserts provide damping and sidewall support. It's essentially suspension at the tire level. Backed by impressive data-proven benefits that collectively translate to faster cornering, more traction, and a more consistent feel, bonus, you are never going to roll a tire at these lower pressures when running Kushcore. It is literally a win, 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 win. I'm running them on all of my gravel bikes, my mountain bikes, and you too can earn a very helpful 25% discount by using the code KINGCUSH21, K-I-N-G-C-U-S-H, the number 21, at kushcore.com. Trust me on this one, they are worth the investment. That is all from here. That is all for now. I'm excited to jump right into this conversation with Ben King. 
I'm looking out the window now and I see Laura. Laura is on a call with Hazel on her back as she's snowshoeing through the backyard. That's a good <laughs> testament to, to how we get things done around here. Uh, is snowshoeing like the, the nap trick? Uh, no, this, she's never actually done this trick. Hazel will, she, we know that Hazel is going to enjoy being outside. She likes going out for snowshoe walks. Uh, yeah, it's probably 50-50 whether she falls asleep, but it's the kind of thing that she's going to enjoy as opposed to, yeah, Hazel's very well uh, scheduled, I should say. Like she snap, she naps on a pretty she's, good routine. Was she like a year and a half now? Uh, not quite one year. She's a hair over 11 months. Okay. And then you guys are just ahead of us, like yeah. On Little baby Luca, what? Uh, well, he's almost four months, so okay. we're in the like desperation, like please sleep. It's been four months. Please <laughs> yep. sleep one night. Like he doesn't sleep. Give us, give us four hours. Like, is that asking too much? <laughs> um, you know what's funny is. You will soon forget this as much as it is just eating at you right now. Like, I forget those well, moments. Jenna even mentioned stuff from, like, the first month, and I was like, I don't really remember that. Like, yeah. I'm pretty sure we're only going to remember the, the good, fun stuff because we spend, like, hours every day just staring at his face, like, trying to make him smile, and he, and he usually does. He's a pretty happy baby. He just doesn't sleep a lot. Yep. He's Sounds... super hyperactive. Like, when he can crawl, uh-huh. like, look out. He's going to be doing laps on the wall. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> well, massive congratulations on parenthood. That is beyond exciting. What was what is the actual birth date? Mid-October, I believe. October, October 16th. Ooh, I like that date. That's the King Challenge 2021. Yeah. Great nice. work, Luca. <laughs> yeah. You know, I like, just said I'll never I used to give my friends or parents a hard time because they would say, Oh, I can't, you know, make this event because my baby has to nap or right. you know, I have to go home at seven PM because my baby has to go to sleep. And I was just like, Wow, your baby runs your life, like just kind of joking around but not really joking around. And our baby definitely runs our life for yeah. sure. So <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I can that. empathize. I totally get that. Laura, you know, we've made a point of making, of being able to still live our lives and do things that we want to do. But inevitably there is, there is a centrality to that baby and your life does revolve around everything. Uh, keeping this little baby alive. It yeah. is, it's just so funny in the grand scheme of not to be crude, but like in the grand scheme of mammals, right? Like baby is going to need us for the next, Oh, realistically, 10 years, but more realistically, like 25 years. Whereas, you know, a giraffe's born and it's running around and super duper cute for the next. <laughs> I know. I'm jealous. Oh, baby. Giraffes, don't have, about, to get, giraffes, giraffes don't have to get vaccinations in foreign countries and need permesos de sociorno. And <laughs> like, dude, we have. That's what been, he's saying. They just go. We've, yeah, I know. But yeah, they don't need those things. But baby people need all of these things that we're learning now. Like I told you just before this call, I was on hold for half an hour with a pediatrician, like in America, trying to find out if we should give them these vaccinations that the Italians want to do. Because we finally found a doctor who will give him his second round of vaccinations. Uh So it's just chaos. And, you know, part of the whole reason that we came over so early was to try to renew our premise of the Sojourno, which basically gives us permission to stay here. 
uh-huh. and add Luca two hours. Uh-huh. So, so yeah, let's talk about the the mm, legalese of being a foreigner overseas. I mean, everything about the scenario is, is so freaking unique. You are in we'll Luca, pandemic on top of it all, right? Yes. It's got to be just next level. Um, so, Luca is not quite four months old, and Luca has a passport, correct? Yes, which was a big sneak him in in your backpack to begin with. Uh I don't know if I talked to you around that time, but we paid to expedite his birth certificate, which took weeks longer than it was supposed to because of COVID. Mm -hmm. Once we had his birth certificate, we paid to expedite his passport, Mm -hmm. which we should have had in two weeks. That's I mean, that's what we paid for. Mm -hmm. And six weeks later, we could see online that they hadn't even like addressed our, uh, our order. Yep. Brutal. So we had flights booked to come to Italy and no passport for baby Luca. Uh-huh. And one night at four in the morning while Jenna was feeding Luca, she found an appointment at a passport agency that opened up that was an hour drive from her parents' house where we were going to be after Christmas because we we're flying out of, uh, out of JFK. Uh-huh. It was the only appointment in a nation. <laughs> <laughs> and the day before our flight. <laughs> and that was going to, could you guarantee you were going to leave the office with a passport in hand or how? Well, we didn't know how it worked. Yeah. We just, they I mean, said they we wouldn't just, guarantee, but yeah, we just prayed and oh, wow. And we had it the next day. Three hour, and three hours later, we had his passport. Was there a contingency? Had that not worked out? Or sorry, I guess what was the window between Jenna seeing when this this appointment might be a possibility and the appointment actually happening? Was that a week later, a month later? Well, I mean, one good thing is that all the airlines have uh, like changed their cancellation sure. policies so that if we didn't get the passport, we could still change our flight. Mm-hmm. Or at least apply the credit to a later flight and just you know replan, reschedule our plans, which you know we weren't really excited about because it would have involved a lot of driving and oh, I bet a lot more planning. Um, so we ended up getting out on December thirty first and landed in Italy on the first. Nice. Um, well, yeah. In the best of times, amid a pandemic, all of these things would be difficult whether it's talking to v dot about an event or talking to your pediatrician at a foreign language we also had to get covid tested for the flight no more than 72 hours before the flight oh my god and in america there are at least in new jersey and virginia there is nowhere that you can have a test done that guarantees the results that fast so we did three covid tests <laughs> just in case to, to hopefully get the results back from at least one of them yeah so you know within that 72 hours we got lucas passport we got the results back from a covid we test. had like and 10 birth certificates too because i ordered so many from different different avenues that i you know tried to figure out how to get it yeah so, so all of our covid tests were negative uh-huh. and Excellent. we got lucas passport and here we are and we, moved, we also, as soon as we got here, we moved into a new apartment. That was the other thing. Yeah. Perfect. So, yeah. We, we, when we left last year, we moved out of our old apartment mm-hmm. for a couple of reasons. 
Mm-hmm. We knew that the baby was coming and we would need to be first floor or have an elevator because mm-hmm. when I'm not here for races, Jenna going up and downstairs with groceries and a stroller and a baby is not really possible. Yep. Uh, and also I didn't have a contract, so we didn't know if we were even coming back at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we moved out of the apartment and after I signed the contract in October, uh, found this place to live and it's actually really great. I mean, we have an office, check it out. I know. I love it. <laughs> Not only do we have an elevator and a bedroom, we have an office. <laughs> so all of that was done over the internet, seeking out the apartment, correct? Uh, so no, as, as most things are accomplished in Italy, it was kind of through a friend of a friend. Yeah. Um, networking. Jenna had actually had an opportunity to see this place before we returned. So she saw it in June or July. Mm-hmm. Bonus. I never saw it. Um, the owners <laughs> Smart were living here at the time yeah. and moved out in the meantime. And so we knew we needed a place to stay. So we were like, all right, we've seen that place. Let's do it. Yeah. And when I, when I got here, I'd never seen it. I was pretty, pretty happily surprised. How much furnishings did you have to cart around or did it come from? It's furniture. So that's, that's another beautiful thing. I've lived 11 years in Italy and always lived in furnished apartments. So we don't really own much here. That is a, it's a good way to remain fluid. I did my entire European career on the same program, finding furnished apartments. I remember hearing, I want to say it was Vodders. When he moved back from Europe, he was like flying back with pots and pans and all sorts of stuff that you just like, I couldn't fathom that. I like having a suitcase, a bike. I didn't have to deal with uh, flying around with baby parts X, Y, and Z. <laughs> you should have um, seen. You should have seen our luggage coming over here. Yeah. Holy smokes! <laughs> it was absurd. Yeah. Um, okay, so I lived in Luca for two years. I want to say we overlapped for both of those two years, and then I went to Girona. You've remained in Italy. I would describe my my living in Italy is, you sort of hit on it. Uh, it's it's just endemic to their culture. It, it Things operate on Italian timeline. It's how you get an apartment. It's a, through a friend of a friend. How there, are well, things... There's so, much, there's so much bureaucracy yep. that even Italians can't deal with it. So they find ways around it, but you have to know the right person. Mm-hmm. I mean, bureaucracy so, down to the point of like buying a stamp at the post office. I remember that was one of my best inefficiencies was trying to go to the post office and knowing that you're going to dedicate an hour to buying a stamp. And I'm sure in your longer time in Italy, you figured out how to buy a stamp faster than I have. Or you just don't ever send mail. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is the good old days. Email was not a thing. How about, yeah, how easy was it to find an a Italian pediatrician? Uh... Through a friend of a friend. Yeah, there you go. Same situation. And I've been here long enough that we have a really good network of really cool people um, who are kind of loosely connected to the cycling community. Right now, I'm I'm the only World Tour professional, or I guess Pro Continental professional here in Luca. Interesting. Um, It used to be so many of us. I mean, as you remember. Yep. But... Little by little, they kind of all moved to Girona. A big group of riders 
followed Taylor Finney to Corata, where it rains 50% more than Luca. <laughs> and they all, it, rather than deciding that they hated Corata, sorry, Corata, Corata. they decided that they hated Tuscany, so they went to Nice with yep. Taylor. And then uh, Taylor went to Girona. Some of them stayed in Nice and some went to Girona. Um, so. I just stuck it out here. I never left Luca and I still love it. Magic. I really do still love it. Like yesterday, and I'm making this up yesterday, I wrote a new road for the first time. Amazing. And I can do that. I can do that anytime I want. I've been here 11 years for the majority of the cycling season. Uh-huh. And anytime I want, I can go out and find a new road, but not just like a new road, like, an incredible new 20 minute climb or 30, or you never know. You never know. You never know if it's going to connect something. Yep. Like this is what happened to this one. This one turned to gravel at the top. Uh-huh. And I was like, all right, I actually pulled my cell phone out and looked on the map and there was no road shown on the map, but there was a gravel road in front of me. And I was like, all right, do I do it or do I don't? Because <laughs> I've got about an hour and a half to two hours of sunlight left. And, you know, this, I, I have an idea maybe that it will connect somewhere to either the booty or couchy side of Montessera. Okay. Yep. Um, so I just started going up my actually, so my, my cell phone did not show a road, but my Wahoo element computer showed a, you know, a, a more narrow line. Oh, interesting. I was like, all right, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna keep on going here, see what happens. And I climbed for 15 minutes on gravel, nice. and it was stunning, like beautiful, really, really awesome, but also not really for a road bike. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I didn't want to, I didn't want to have to turn around and descend it. And then I got to the top where it opened up, and I could see where I was, and it was nowhere near where I thought it would pop, pop me right. out. Right. So I was very, I was still quite far from pavement. And if I turned around, I knew I wouldn't make it back before dark. Uh-huh. Perfect. So I had to kind of, I just kind of had to keep going. Like I didn't want to descend on road like that, but I did. I just went for it, just sent it and prayed that I didn't get a puncture because a puncture would definitely mean getting back after dark. Uh-huh. So I made it out and yeah, that's the end of my story. But it was it was like a, you know this awesome adventure that I had right out the back door in a place that I've lived for eleven years. Yeah, and I'd never been back there before. That's awesome. Um, f- checking out some of your social media posts, I believe Tuscany and Luca in particular have been uh, a bit damper and chillier and snowier than normal. Is that accurate? It's pretty wet. It has rained. It's yeah, it's rained at more than half the days that we've been here. Yep. Um, but it usually doesn't rain the whole day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Italians love their drama style, and the forecast will say, you know, you look at the forecast and you just then you want to move to Spain. <laughs> but it never rains the entire day. Yeah. Like, how about you know, yeah? Has fatherhood impacted your training? Like, are you traditionally, hey, I'm going to ride in the morning or are you traditionally, hey, I'm going to chase the the four-hour window of dry weather and have those two things overlapped 
in any way? Advantageous uh, for, I mean, before fatherhood, I'm, I'm the guy who's like looking at the forecast and I'm going to try to stay dry. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with a baby, I'm kind of on morning duty a bit more because we have a sitter that comes over um, in the evening because my wife is working also. So I try to, if I, the later I can ride, the better uh, in terms of, you know, timing for her productivity mm-hmm. and make sure the baby's taken care of. So I try to take them in the morning. I mean, today I was looking at the forecast. At, so this morning at 6.25, the UCI came for a blood test. Very and opportune. We, the baby woke up. We're all sleeping in the same room. The baby woke up five times last night. So we didn't get much sleep. And then the UCI came at 6.20. And mm-hmm. so I did my blood test. Couldn't fall back asleep. So I just, I was up and I'm looking at it and it's supposed to be raining all day, but it was sunny all morning. And I was like, mm, I really want to go out, but I know it's been a rough night for Jenna, my wife as well. So I waited until they woke up and took over daddy duty and the whole time I'm looking out the window like mm, it's actually like there's I see some blue sky and it's supposed to be raining this is my window mm-hmm. um finally at I think it was like 10 30 or 11 I got out and just basically rode straight into a torrential downpour like, and this is, I have an easy day today. This is my, this is my rest day, my recovery ride. So yeah. I'm just trying to spin legs for two hours uh-huh. and the first half an hour we're just in a, a blanket of rain, like soaking wet. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't too cold and the last hour and a half were dry. So it ended up being a fine day, but I just, you know, it just kind of makes me laugh. <laughs> yep. Roll the punches. That is Probably as good advice as any young parent can give to another. Um, and cyclist. Yeah, yeah. Well, right. So how about... Even outside of parenthood. Exactly. Combining all of these things together, how we were talking about, you know, you feel like you're in a fraternity. I feel like I'm in a club amongst other fathers. Do you look at the Peloton differently among your, call it coworkers, the ones who are parents? Um you know, the way I remember I had a particular teammate who, because we were gone so often at races at camps, he would parent over uh, Skype. And it was it was something that I thought was kind of entertaining. And he was very cute. And then he would try to discipline the kids who are a little bit, I mean, considerably older than, than Luca and Hazel. Um, but you could tell that there was just extreme and extraordinary love, especially in hindsight, especially where I am now. I mean, at the time it was just like, hey, Good thing for Skype. How do you see the other members of the the pro peloton as parents? I mean, having known that I want to be a dad, I've always kind of observed my teammates who were kind of trying to figure out how they make it work and trying to, you know, basically judging who are the ones that are doing it well and what are some of their strategies that I can, you know, take on. Mm -hmm. I think this career is, is pretty unique. in the fact that when we are home, we we're able to spend a lot of quality time. Like I can be really flexible with my schedule. Like, like I said, I 
have been taking over morning duty most days. Like I wake up, I make coffee, I make breakfast. And then um, when the baby's done eating, I entertain him and put him down for his first nap. And then I can try to get out for a ride. Mm-hmm. That's, that's my morning. Um, but when I'm gone, I'm gone. Like Jenna's got to do everything by herself. Cause I'm not here. <laughs> I can Skype and, you know, so far I haven't had to travel because of the pandemic. Like my first race may not be till end of March. We have a training camp coming up next week, which I'm, I'm actually really looking forward to. Mm-hmm. Donald, gonna be? You know, in Spain. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, it, this just the past, it's been a lot of solo rides, just really having to find ways to stay motivated and, um, stay professional really. Um, when really no one would really know, no one would really know or see if I just didn't train at all. <laughs> like, right. I'm very accountable to myself right now because I know that there will be races and when there are, I have to be ready. Like I got to show up because you know, we haven't, we had a, a block of races in the fall. Um, but since last year, it's been, you know, pretty far and few between. Sure. Yeah. Big time. I mean, I, I was probably as surprised as anybody that the racing did go off and I purely have the perspective of being stateside and then lo and behold, yeah, there was a very condensed and very fast action packed season. You're very much more boots on the ground going back and forth across the Atlantic. Now that you've landed in Italy and have been there for, for, you know, the good chunk of the, well, all of 2021, how, what do you see? What is happening in Europe? Are things promising or things daunting or things totally up in the air? I mean, it's normal to us now that when you go to the grocery store, you have your temperature checked and you have to wear a mask and you have to wear hand sanitizer. That would have freaked us out a year ago. It did freak us out a year ago when it first started happening, but that's just kind of what it is now. Um, Apart from that, we're not really getting out much. Like we haven't been going out to dinner and stuff because you know, we have a seven o'clock bedtime for the baby and stuff doesn't open here (laughs) until seven o'clock. The pure logistics of going to a training camp uh, next week in Spain. Yeah, that I can speak to more. Um, Like is that something you feel totally safe about or is that still a strange thing to go to the airport? It's pretty tight right now. There are very few flights around Europe. Uh, my itinerary to get to Spain is, is crazy. It's like two days. It's, it would literally be easier to fly from New York or Virginia. That's bananas. Yeah. Because there's just, there are fewer flights going out. I mean, you know, Pisa will have like one or, you know, just a few flights like every other day, um, to select destinations. Um, so it's, it's a lot more difficult now. Uh And then taking a train you like you need to show a negative covid test but even the inner city train because i had a flight um 
from Spain back to Italy two weeks ago. There were no flights to anywhere near Luca, so I flew into Rome mm-hmm. and had to take the train from Rome. And I mean, I had the negative COVID test to show, but I had to show it like four times on the journey uh, because they were really controlling it. Hmm. With the ramification of they might have just yanked you straight off the train if you didn't have the proof of it. Or well, I don't know guess. where they would have put me. They yanked me off the train. And I don't know where they would have put me, yeah, but I guess like, yeah. yeah, they don't want you traveling, uh, you know, through different uh, provinces of Italy. How about, what was the experience like being at bike races theoretically without crowds? I mean, we see it from the other side of a computer screen or a TV screen. What's it like being on the bike and not having people on the other side of a barrier? Um, I mean, a lot of races, there were people on the other side of the barrier. And in some cases, it was frustrating because they were not wearing masks and not being, you know, following the, the guidelines of safety um, mm-hmm. and coming up quite close and trying to grab our water bottles. And it just wasn't controlled very well um, where we are having to be so careful and get tested so many times and wear masks and hand sanitize 24 seven. And, um, you know, I think in a lot of ways, like it, it kind of opens your eyes to what we were exposing ourselves to before COVID <laughs> because yeah. you're just, you're just all over thousands of people every day. Um, and, you know, I think that uh, that's relevant to non-cyclists as well, to non-professional athletes, like just, yeah. I mean, I think everybody's hygiene and sanitary habits will change due to this, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I, let's talk about something besides COVID. Everyone's sick of COVID. <laughs> Everyone's sick of COVID. Yeah. How, I've read that you've signed contracts for the subsequent year as late as, say, the Vuelta, as late as you know the fall for the subsequent year. Obviously, the past year has been a roller coaster for... Oh, goodness. Oh, goodness. <laughs> that was a record scratch. Ben and I are now going to oogle over babies for the next five minutes, so I will spare you those cute noises and return you to the show. You're Luca King, and that's Dead King. Oh, How my are goodness. you? Look at that. <laughs> oh, that hair is amazing. What yeah. color? Is it brown? Hey, Little hey buddy. Nice. Hi. <laughs> it is remarkable how quickly they're going to learn screens. Like we've done a concerted oh. effort to not ever have screens outside of Skype in front of Hazel. And she'll yeah. still like find a phone and be swiping through. It's like, how do you... Crazy. Hold on, I have to screenshot this. Yeah. What? Oh. Hey, look at that. <laughs> oh. Oh. Oh, yeah, the mouse. Hey. <laughs> mm-hmm. There you go. Nice. Yeah. That is awesome. Bye, Luca. Bye, Bye to mommy. <laughs> screens. Yeah, screens are. They're they're inevitable, man. Yep. Walk me through a roller coaster of the fall. 
to go from potentially, like you said, you left Italy last fall not knowing if you would be returning to bike racing, to the elation of parenthood, to a reality of you might not have a job, and then subsequently, I think you've signed a two-year contract. Is that right? Yes, I did sign a two-year contract. It was an extremely stressful, like, two months leading up to the birth of Luca. Uh-huh. Um, I was worried about, I guess, two things were foremost causes of stress. Um, one being whether or not I would actually be there for Luca's birth. Yeah. Because I was scheduled to race the Vuelta. Mm-hmm. And I raced the Ardennes Classics, which were, uh, I think Liège finished a little, a little over a week before his due date. And I had a flight wow. booked back to America yep. straight from Liège. So I got, I ended up getting sick in flesh alone, like really bad stomach issues. Um, mm-hmm. but we were down on riders, you know, kind of late in a very intense block of racing. Yeah. And so they needed me to stay in race Liège, which I did, which made my illness worse. And then I boarded a, you know, a transatlantic flight back to America, um, you know, scheduled for, to be home for two weeks, hopefully for the birth of our child. Yeah. Um, my flight to the Vuelta was booked two days after his due date. Wow. Which in hindsight is kind of crazy because like we didn't even leave the hospital for two days. Right. 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 <laughs> so, yep. <laughs> New reality. Uh, Time just is but, different. Yeah. So I, I stayed sick after Liège for 10 days in trying to train for a grand tour. Yeah. Um, on top of all of this just made me worse. And I just, it was a long time before I was well. Um, mm-hmm. And so they, the team made a call that I would not race the Vuelta, uh, which allowed me to stay home for Luca's birth. Um, I was making phone calls to, you know, potential sponsors trying to figure out how much I can make to transition to triathlon, like that oh, wow. kind of thing. Like I was really thinking I might be done as a professional athlete mm-hmm. um, or at least trying to like come up with a backup plan. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely felt like I really had unfi- unfinished business in the sport of cycling. Um, I feel like I, you know, 2018 was kind of a breakthrough year for me. Uh, in terms of results, like I don't think necessarily in terms of what my potential is or in terms of, you know, what year I sort of, uh, had a breakthrough, but in terms of results, 2018 is the year that everyone will look at and say like, you know, Oh, you know, (laughs) you're okay. Not only did you race grand tours, but you were a grand tour stage winner. Oh yeah. You did that multiple times. Yeah, I mean, being a teammate with you, racing against you, I would, I would, I just think of you as extraordinarily strong in a variety of different disciplines. Be it, yeah. I mean, if I had to say, like, 2016 was my breakout year. Like, that's when I had a major breakthrough in terms of training, Uh strength, 
um, in all kinds of different ways. Like my power records just were shattered in 2018 wow. in terms of my power, wasn't my best year ever. Like in Vuelta, I've been stronger. Huh. I've been significantly stronger. That's fascinating. Just, everything kind of fell into place at the right time. Mm-hmm. And also I think a big factor was the heat in the Vuelta and the fact that that year we did not have air conditioning for a few months before the Vuelta in wow. Italy. Yeah. And it was like, it was scorching. Like yeah. I fell asleep every single night in a puddle of sweat. And, and so I think I was just extremely well adapted to the heat. Yeah. On That's top crazy. Of, you know, and completely yeah. believable. I mean, yeah, there are a lot of people who go before hot races. I know, you know, cyclists will go to the sauna and, and sweat it out. And I used to think it was ridiculous. And then I've done it on a handful of occasions and you're like, holy moly, heat adaption is a thing. Yeah. And that's in a one hour or 15 minute window, like let alone just living it 24 seven. Yeah. And I think that's just something that my body naturally adapts well to. Like I've tried to adapt to the cold. I mean, people always say like, oh, you're from Virginia. You should be a tough guy. Like, you know, it's raining outside. Everyone else quit mentally. Like this yeah. is the day for you. That's the speech I get before every like cold, wet, rainy day. Yeah. But my body does not respond well to the cold and I can't figure out how to make it. Mm-hmm. If it's, I mean, my lips turn blue and I'm shaking and I'm tough. Like I don't quit. Like, yeah, it's true. Like, yeah, I can suffer. That's yeah. I've made my career on suffering. Like, Mentally, I'm still engaged, but my body <laughs> just will not respond yeah. in that in those elements. Um, the heat, on the other hand, like I hate it as much as everyone else, but I'm better at it. Uh-huh. So then, here would be the quick follow up: like, how do you unwind, or how do you, where do you put your stress, or where do you seek, uh, I guess, solace in those moments of not knowing? Because you've experienced um, that highly in the past six months, especially. So I guess to to wrap up the answer to your to the previous question uh, about like having unfinished business, like I feel like I'm just getting close to what I believe I'm capable of in the sport of cycling, and I did not. I wasn't. I'm not ready to be done. Like I still want to try to win. Um, I still want to know how good I can be as a cyclist. Mm-hmm. And that's something that kind of drives me. That's I've always said, like, I, I'm in the, I'm doing this career cause I want to know what my full potential is. Like, that's what drives me is to kind of reach my potential. Um, and I've had glimpses of what it can be in 2018 gave a few of those. Um, and then 2019, you know, I got to race the tour de France. Things just never really clicked for me that season. Um, and 2020 was a wash. Mm -hmm. Um, I think racing two grand tours a year, two years in a row, just really, really cooked me. So I think, you know, I, I rested really well this off season, like, um, intentionally. And then also because I had a surgery in December, um, which led to more forced recovery. Um, so I'm actually feeling pretty good now. Like things are moving in the right direction as they should be, um, responding well to the training, which is encouraging. Um, 
but it was so knowing that I wasn't ready to be done as a pro cyclist and the fact that it was mid October and I didn't have a contract was really stressful. Um, and like you said, I've been in a situation of not having a contract late in the season a few times before. So it could be in tandem with that or, or independent of that. Just where do you unwind? How do you relax? How do you, outside of just time off the bike, for example, I know you've gotten into photography. Like, is that a place that you can seek some good concerted yeah. time away from the bike? I, I think there are a few ways to answer that question. I mean, first and foremost, I think my faith gives me the best perspective to deal with stress. Um, because of my faith, uh, because of believing that I'm, I'm known and loved independent of my performance on a bike and whether or not I continue to be a pro, pro cyclist, um, I have an identity outside of the sport. Um, I can rest in that and also believing that God has a plan for me and that I'll end up where he wants me. Um, it may not where, be where I want to be in a, in a, you know, a given time frame because I want to be a pro cyclist. That's what I know. Um, and that's been my prayer. Like, God, this is what I want. Um, you know, lead me where, where you want me, but I'm going to do everything I can to make this happen. And if this is where you want me, then, you know, open the doors, make it possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so far, you know, things have kind of fallen into place that way. Um, in terms of kind of the day to day, like disconnecting from, because even, even without the stress of, of contracts and, you know, whether or not you're going to be a, professional anymore like you put a tremendous amount of stress on your body to do the training that's required to compete at this level mm-hmm. um and after you know three or four day block block after block after block of really long intense training you just get tired and broken down and especially when there have been very few races like you need a way to disconnect from racing and cycling. And certainly like, you know, baby Luca has put a smile on my face and uh, all kinds of stressful moments. Um, But yeah, I mean, I have a ton of hobbies. Uh, Definitely have gone off the deep end with photography. (laughs) I'm really enjoying it. Um, You know, all my rides have been solo cafes are closed, but I've just been, I've been riding to marshes and places where, you know, where I think will be good for wildlife uh, with my camera and looking for birds, new species, or, you know, a a beautiful photo of something uh, that people just don't see every day. Um, You know, especially owls, like owls, owls hooked me. Uh Uh-huh. That is so cool. That's so unique. You know, I don't. Yeah. And, and learning of photography too. Like, you know, I, I'm watching YouTube videos on, um, you know, editing techniques and photography techniques and how to control the camera and 
I definitely, you know, I'm not going to say I'm an amazing photographer by any means, but um, I can see a major difference in what I was able to do a year or two from now to what I can do now. Yeah. Yeah. YouTube is a fascinating outlet for education. I've done some, I've just started some video editing. Um, Ansel, who produces the videos that are of way higher quality than the subpar ones that I'm doing. He's like, dude, you want to learn anything? Go to YouTube, be a photography, how to edit photography. It's a, it's a fascinating outlet out there. Um, So Ian Boswell lives up the road here. I'm pointing up the road because he lives in that direction. But in reality, it's an hour and 15 minutes up the road. Um, yep. He, when he, I mean, you know, he had basically a forced retirement as a result of a, a couple too many concussions. And, but he's, he was closer to the sport than I was having retired a few years after. Um, he has more connections and, and he, I remember him talking about talking to people like Larry Warbass, for example, but then a bunch of other his contemporaries in the sport and almost this acuteness, the, the attention to speed, the attention to how to, how to hone your aerodynamics. You know, there's talk nonstop about ketones. It's basically everybody trying to chase that last 1%, which seems like it's something that I don't feel like I noticed in my career. I mean, yeah, we had the talk of sky doing the, the marginal gains, now that you have approaching a dozen years in, in pro cycling, what do you see over the arch of that time amid a Peloton? This is a really interesting topic. <laughs> Can of worms open. Yep. Um, what I can say is since I became a pro in 2011, races, so there was a marked difference around. 2014 to 2015 in just the speed and intensity of races. Um, I mean, I, I never really like to talk about doping, but right. obviously there was, uh, you know, all the big scandals that happened in the early 2000s that I think you know, introducing new testing protocols, um, more testing, um, and different types of testing, um, kind of scared people away from it. And then all of a sudden you have a team like team sky with a giant budget. Um, and a lot of teams with, with bigger budgets and introducing, more advanced science into nutrition and training um, that are starting to give riders uh, greater edges. Um, I mean, this was during your career mm -hmm. when Bradley Wiggins won the Tour de France, correct? Correct. Yep. The, the last time he won the Tour, like no one could believe that he spent a month away from his family in Tenerife first year in Nevada or wherever he did altitude because, Oh wow. What a professional, what a sacrifice. Like no one's doing that. Mm -hmm. He's so committed. That was unheard of. Agreed. Now, now everybody is doing that. Yep. Yep. Like all, 
a lot of the riders who are living in Girona now also have second homes at altitude in Andorra. Oh, seemingly most of them. Yeah. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Like the riders are making a lot more sacrifices to go faster these days and races have gotten a lot harder. Hmm. I mean, again, like you can look at like a handful of the best riders in the world um, 10 years ago who maybe were really, really paying attention to their diets and weighing their food and, you know, not, not just starving themselves, like in the old school Italian mentality of like, <laughs> you know, ride five hours, have a banana and go to bed. Like, yep, yep. It, it's very calculated. Like these are the macronutrients and micronutrients that you need to get the most out of the type of training that you're doing for this day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and weighing it out on a gram scale uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. And races have definitely gotten faster and harder. I feel that in my legs, <laughs> like, yeah, it's pretty hectic. Um, I wonder, you know, people will take a quick look and they'll, they'll say, in the early 2000s when doping was rife, this is the average speed of the tour. And then be it, 10 years later or 15 years later or 20 years later, the average speed in every graphic that I've seen is virtually the same. And so people are like, yes, instead of doping, people are using more aerodynamic tactics. They're, they're seeking out their marginal gains elsewhere outside of doping. And then it's got to be kind of interesting because bike races are scripted to a degree, right? It's like a break, attack, 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 breakaway goes, and then the peloton slows down. And in that peloton slowing down, like that's where you can almost average the speeds across the board. Because then once you get going again, you're probably going faster or at a, you know, doping era, doping height of height of doping era speed. But it, basically, my point is, it's not purely as black and white as an average speed in a race. Um, well, another thing that I would say has shifted is you used to have more control in the peloton. You had these these great highly respected captains of the road on, you know, two or three different teams in the Peloton. And these guys kind of called the shots. Like when the, when they saw the right combination of riders in a breakaway, they went to the front and they stopped things. Mm -hmm. And they said, that's the break. Like it's done now. Basta. Like we're all going to stop and have a nature break and eat some food and start riding tempo in 15 minutes. Right. Right. Um, and young riders, because this is what I experienced as a young rider on a team, I was riding the front, like domestiques were the workers they sacrificed. Mm -hmm. And now you have these 20 year olds who are winning the tour de France. (laughs) Literally. Yeah, And you don't have these, you know, these road captains anymore who are highly respected and can say like, don't attack. And they, you know, strike fear into the hearts of the the Neo pros. Like, no, the Neo pros literally elbow them out of the way and go up the road. Yeah. So that dynamic has also shifted. Um, I I mean, in a sense, like the, the, almost the etiquette is changing a bit. Like, and I think some of it can be related to like new rules, point systems from the UCI, because 
you know, even groupettos now where you used to just ride 300 Watts in a groupetto and the big, you know, somebody would shout groupetto and everybody would go in that group. That doesn't really happen anymore. Like somebody shouts groupetto and everyone keeps going as hard as they can. Like there is not that like cohesion anymore between riders and between teams. It's everyone out for themselves. And because of the UCI point system, you have guys sprinting for 54th place in, in, you know, these classics and semi-classics where there are like, uh, you know, a few points up the road. That is, yeah, that's a side of it. You don't see nor think about, especially don't see and therefore don't think about it. They don't show that on TV. No, (laughs) no, sir. It is exciting. Like it kind of makes, in some ways it makes the sport a bit more exciting because it's not quite as controlled. Like Uh the reason that those tactics exist is because they're effective. Like, yeah. And we could all make it a lot easier on ourselves by just saying like, okay, like these three riders go up the road and we ride tempo behind and, Mm -hmm. and that's it. Mm -hmm. Instead we have to attack for like, you know, another 50 K and wear everybody out the same three riders get up the road yep. and then everybody stops yep. instead of just, you know, kind of having that sort of unspoken agreement within the Peloton. Um, we're definitely not making it easier on ourselves. Uh, <laughs> races are getting faster. Like right. the average, if you look on pro cycling stats, like every year, the average speed of races goes up. Okay. Well, there we go. Part of that is due to, you know, the advancements in science and a lot of it also is involved in advancements in equipment and clothing and, you know, down to every last detail. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting and it's a really interesting topic to dive further into. And I've got, you know, I've got all kinds of theories about it. I've, you know, I've, I've spoken about a few of my theories yeah shorter follow-up do you can you make any forecast do you do you predict that races are going to get shorter they're going to do like the 150k or less more often do you think the uci loves the current status is is the current status as much as cycling is fluid is the current status quo sustainable or does something have to give yeah i think it is i mean these races haven't changed in centuries like literally accurate um they're more or less the same format which i think is what is attractive about the sport there's so much history mm-hmm. um that's what you know that's part of what creates the drama and the romance because uh, you know if you line up prepare roubaix like you're doing the same exact thing that they were doing you know so long ago mm-hmm um, what I think you might see is riders' careers getting shorter because, you know, like I said about domestiques and what was the role of young riders and, you know, you and I have kind of made careers of being domestiques and being the, that go-to dependable support guy that, you know, you can count on to mm-hmm. set the tempo and is not expected to get the results. But now you have... especially because of the UCI point systems and the points required to stay in the world tour, like for teams, 
now you have fewer and fewer of these like, you know, Ted King, Bernie Isel type riders mm-hmm. um, who make a career of being a domestique. Like you have to be able to get results as well. Yeah. And yeah, that it just, it's tough because I think that position is extremely valuable and it may be an oversight from um, even from team directors who kind of overlook that role and the dedication and commitment required to make a successful team um, to have the right type of rider fill that space. Mm-hmm. But then you have like, you know, on Ineos, you have Michael Kwiatkowski, who's the domestique. Yeah. And on quick step, you've got, I don't know, you name it. Like right. Remy Cavagna, like, yeah. yeah Remy Cavagna is being the domestique. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> that guy is an absolute machine. Yeah. Somebody should be working for him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it goes back to, they don't need to, he can do his own layouts. budgets. Yeah. Oh, it's all so freaking fascinating. Yeah. So it's really, it is really interesting. The sport is definitely evolving. Um, yes. Well, knowing the importance of free time with, with very, very little ones around, I'm going to wrap up quick with three final questions. Hit me. Number one, favorite place to ride a bike Two, number one place you would like to ride that you've never been three living or otherwise with whom would you like to go for a bike ride? Hmm. My favorite places to ride a bike are the Blue Ridge Mountains in Central Virginia and Tuscany, Italy, which are the two places that I live during uh, training time for me. Mm-hmm. Um, for a lot of different reasons. They're great and they're similar in a lot of ways. It's just the road density. Um, I'm still exploring them. I still don't know them. And the more I know, the better I, the more I love it. Uh, I would like to go to Japan. That's on both Jen and I's bucket list. That is exactly identical answer for the King fam. Well, let's good. do it. Let's do a King, King family vacation. Perfect. <laughs> let's hire some nannies and eat some sushi. And <laughs> I love it. Uh, who do you want to go for a bike ride with? Oh, I mean, so many people, I guess. Here's just one off the top of my head. I recently connected with Chris Burkhart, who is a uh, world-renowned photographer. Mm-hmm. He did a podcast with Ian Boswell. Yeah. Because of my newfound obsession with photography, I think that we could ride all day and never run out of things to talk about. Yeah. So I think that'd be fun. Right, right now, I'd like to go for a ride with him, and hopefully I'll get the opportunity. Nice. Uh, yeah, very, very outgoing individual. Chris Burkhart, check him out on Instagram. He's the one with 4 million followers and he takes really nice photos. Um, well, shoot. You know what I need to add? And you can add this to the beginning of the podcast or anywhere that it, uh, that it fits in. Insert. 
I think it especially is relevant to the question about uh, stress and contract time around the birth of Luca because Luca was born on October 16th and three hours after his birth, I got a phone call from Jonas Carney uh, offering me a position on rally cycling. Um, and I had, I'd spoken with Jonas about a month earlier and the team was full and they kind of made it made space on a team for me um, so that I could continue to live my dream um, as a part of that organization. And I've stayed close with, you know, management on that team over the years. Um, it's such a cool team and one that I've always thought would be awesome to ride for. Nice. Um, it's like the most American team in the Peloton um, with Rally Health as their title sponsor. I think there, there are just so many ways that it aligns with, you know, just the lifestyle and health uh, dynamic of being a professional athlete. Um, wow. It's a very logical title sponsor. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was an easy answer. And I couldn't believe how quickly in my motivation came back, you know, after such a, a stressful, difficult season, um, long solo rides, um, very intense, congested block of racing where things never really clicked. Like I was extremely run down. I needed a break. Um, but once I agreed to ride for rally, I like my motivation had, had never really been higher. So I'm really excited about it. I can't wait for our first team camp. Um, and especially for the first races. That is freaking awesome. Yeah. Uh, I mean, rallies had their name in cycling for so many years and they've, they've played the long game so well. You know, you hear company XYZ wants to get into cycling and two years later they're gone. Whereas these guys have been around. Boom. That's just it. I mean, my first team was Kelly benefits. Yeah, I know. I was going to say, talk about cool for a full circle is reconnecting with Jonas who, what he was probably like a team captain while you were racing there. Right. Well, he wasn't racing. He was the, he was the, uh, oh, I was giving you too many years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know, it was still Jonas directing the team. Um, Jonas who gave me the phone call, uh, you know, when I was in my dorm room at Virginia tech after <laughs> junior nationals offering me a spot on Cali benefits. Um, you know, same, same core leadership group and, it's exactly like you say. I mean, how many times do we hear of new teams in cycling who want to do the Tour de France and, you know, are overambitious and do not have the infrastructure or organization to jump to that level? Right. And you have a team in 2008, a continental team, who says one day we want to race in Tour de France. And slowly and steadily and methodically, they work to that point and you know i would say that they're on the cusp of being ready and i would love to play a role a small role in um you know helping get us to that point because having a truly north american team in the tour de france would is something that i think the sport needs um yeah along with more races in america well yeah Another. That's another podcast. That's another podcast, and that's another season <laughs> of podcasting. The state of affairs in domestic road racing. Far out. Well, Ben, I appreciate the time. 
more than you know. Uh, it is always great to connect. It's been way too long with a microphone or otherwise. Absolutely. Well, next time, warn me when we're like recording for the first 20 minutes. <laughs> talking. No, that's the fun stuff. That's exactly. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Ben, for being a long overdue guest on this podcast. And thank you, Kushkor, for sponsoring this episode of King of the Ride. Let me summarize the benefits of Kushkor once again. With impressive, data-backed proof, Kushkor offers a faster ride, a more comfortable ride, a more reliable ride, more cornering, better cornering, faster cornering, plus damping and sidewall support. Now I want to extend their support to you, our listener. Please use the code KINGKUSH21, K-I-N-G-C-U-S-H, the numbers 21 at kushcore.com. Save yourself a big chunk of change at the bottom line. Trust me now. Thank me later. Check them out. Folks, I thank you very much for listening. Until next time, please enjoy the ride.